It is so good, so good that you have joined us today as we consider um, our series on the churches in the book of Revelation. And today, as Pastor Isaac has just mentioned, we will be doing the fifth church, the church of Sardis. Of the seven churches mentioned in Revelations 2 and 3, each one represented different aspects of our churches through all times, both ancient and current. The Christians portraying the church of Smyrna and Philadelphia, for example, received many praises from the Lord Jesus. But the poor Sardisian Christians really were the one group, one group that didn't cut it at all with the Lord. If you thought the Titerian Christians had it wrong after last week's sermon, wait till you get to know the Sardisian Christians. They had nothing but chastisement from the Lord, almost to the point of being called dead wood, except for a tiny minority. Now, don't go off and turn off your devices just yet, okay? Because there's still so much we can learn from the Sardisian Christians. I'm sure you're curious to know whether you are like that awesome tiny minority later that we'll read about in Sardis that overcame all odds and to emerge as that special and victorious few, right? I know you are there, outside there, so hallelujah. And I know that we have an enthusiastic and curious crowd today that's locked on, amen? Now, give me an amen in the chat if you are enthusiastic or excited to hear God's word today. And if you aren't, it's still okay. We have the prayer altar open later at the end of the service for you to repent at, okay? No, just kidding, just kidding. But do bear in mind when the pastors each week speak about each Revelation church in turn. It's not about the collective behaviour of all the churches or of any particular church. So don't go about comparing the churches with any of the seven churches of the revelation. Like you might go around telling your Christian friend off um, that saying, SIBKL is like church in Philadelphia, so good, you know, and UMC is like Smyrna, but your church, ayo, you know, just like the church of Sardis, full of the living dead. No, don't say that, all right? That won't do at all, because if you do, you won't be much different from the Sardisian Christians. In fact, Jesus was and is still speaking to pocket of believers like you and I as individuals, about the characteristics and the pitfalls found in the Revelation churches that all of us as disciples of Christ should either follow and copy or stay far away from. So for today, we shall look at the church of Sardis together. Again, we'll start by looking up her mention by Jesus in the scripture. It's in Revelation 3, verses 1 to 6. And if you've got a Bible with you, wherever you are, in your homes, your offices, or wherever you're located. Now read it together with me, Revelation 3, 1 to 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds you have, a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds complete, and I found it incomplete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and the angels. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Wow. Praise the Lord for His Word. Our Lord Jesus begins His letter to the Sardis church by declaring that it is He who holds the seven spirits, or as in the NLT version, the sevenfold Spirit of God and the seven stars. Jesus has chosen specific and intentional introductions for Himself at the beginning of every letter to the Revelation churches. They pertain to the matter that He wished to speak to them about, and Sardis is no exception. Here Jesus declares that it is the Holy Spirit's perfect sevenfold gifts or ministry as described in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, and the fullness of the Holy Spirit with all His power, graces, and operations and are all in His grasp. And the spiritual authority proceeds from Him. It implies that there's infinite power by the Spirit to convict of sin and of hollow confession. Seven, whenever mentioned in the Bible, refers to fullness, completeness, and the perfect number. His further reference to his hold on the seven stars, as already been described in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. They are the messengers or angels of the seven churches. And it also emphasizes Jesus' supreme authority over spiritual beings and matters. If ever you have doubts about Jesus' deity or him being equal with God, this is one of the declarations in the scripture that puts these doubts to test. But Jesus is certainly not declaring this double emphasis on his spiritual authority just for boasting's sake. Then, why did he specifically mention this to the Sardis church and not so much to the other churches? For example, to the Ephesus church, he declared himself as only holding the seven stars and walking among the churches. Or to Pergamum, he wields the double-edged sword. Or to Philadelphia, he holds the key of David. What is the crux of the problem here? What is that that is most missing from the Sadi's church? While you think about it for a while, let me tell you a little bit about the background of the Sadi's, that you will have a better understanding of this entire circumstances. Or perhaps we may find them not so different from your present circumstances. Geographically, Sadi's was located at a plateau, 1,500 feet above sea level, on the Timolus mountain range and surrounded by the Hermes Valley, which is very fertile. It is situated about 80 kilometers from Izmir at the coast of the Aegean Sea and is used to lie along a very lucrative and important trade route from the interior of Asia Minor, Anatolia, to the Aegean coast. It was in a favorable location until a massive earthquake destroyed it in AD 17 and it took more than 10 years for them to rebuild that city at great cost. It also had tremendous military advantage. Being located on a plateau, it was surrounded by steep cliffs all round on three sides and only had one entrance which could be easily guarded at the south access. Yet, it had been captured and occupied massively twice by the Persians once, led by Cyrus the Great in AD or BC, 6th uh, century, and then again under the Syrians in the 6th century BC. Traditionally, was told, that the Sadis people were complacent. They, were, they often let the guard down. And it was finally abandoned in the 15th century after suffering many conquests. But 
the river Pactolus passes through Sardis. And with it, it brings down Electrum, an alloy of gold and silver, down from the mountains. Sardis was also a financial powerhouse at that time. As early in the 6th century BC, purifying and the minting of gold and silver coins were done under King Creosus of the Lydian Empire for the very first time recorded in the history of the world. With it being on an important trade route, gold, fine cloths, and other form of trading brought along great wealth and prosperity to Sardis. With all these advantages in Sardis' favour, up to the 1st century AD, when the letter to the church of Sardis was written, the inhabitants, including the church, certainly looked good, well-to-do, and certainly appeared so blessed. But in the midst of this, it is not inconceivable that they also became complacent, lazy, presumptuous in their security, and perhaps even arrogant in their outlook. Now you can begin to see with me how the church in setting of ancient Sardis, or perhaps even one like it in our modern metropolis, would look like. I could be wrong, but it wouldn't go very far from this scenario on any given Sunday. Can you just imagine with me? On the Sunday, the churchgoers would arrive in gold-gilded horse carriages, drawn into the front of the church, and some of them would be doing a three-point star or a round blue and white badge on their carriage front. And many of them would be traders, bankers, trade, perhaps even land or business owners, and some would be civil servants. But many would be dressed in the fineries of the land, and with jewellery and gold bedecked upon them, which would make our Malaysian jewellers look like pawn shops. They are powerful people, maybe even beautiful people, and certainly very influential in the public square too. As they arrive, there might be others in the church. They might have to move slightly aside to give their seats for them. Not many, just a few, according to the hierarchy handed down to them. Later, when the collection bag was being passed around, the jingle of the newly minted gold or silver coins poured lavishly into these collection bags. And the weight of the bag seems to highlight the prosperity and the blessings bestowed upon the church. Hymns and worship songs were sung, praising the Lord for His provision, and sermons well preached on the benefits of good works, securing more divine blessings from the Lord. And then, after the service, they leave to go back to their cutthroat businesses for the whole week before promptly appearing one week again next Sunday. To many, the church of Sardis was a model church. In fact, if you take away the horse-drawn carriages and the gold, I would be describing some churches right here in Kuala Lumpur or perhaps in the city where you are logging in from. Couldn't I? Oops. They have good reputation or even better standing in the eyes of the public and everyone except for a few described in the letter live peacefully with one another. To many, this church has a reputation of being alive and vibrant, yet something seems not quite right. As we asked the question earlier, what is missing most from the Sardis church? The Lord Jesus who wields supreme spiritual authority in all this fullness answers in Revelation 3 verse 1. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Spiritually dead. Authentic spirituality, the Holy Spirit and His ministries and His gifts are totally missing from the church. 
First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 says, What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. What God has freely given us is not merely blessings or talents or possessions, but it's grace and salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing wrong with receiving and, and using the material goods that God has given us. So don't get me wrong, please. I'm not saying at all that having riches is bad. Not at all. Being rich or financially stable and carrying the name of Jesus Christ, but ignoring and putting aside the works of the Holy Spirit, the authority of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, would just carry on the appearance of being alive, but it equal being dead, spiritually dead. So some Christians earn the moniker, the living dead. The living dead. And mind you, Jesus is speaking to Christians, not pre-believers, yeah? So in the first place, there you have it. Jesus' condemnation. Through the Revelation letter in Revelation 3 verse 1, Jesus with His supreme spiritual authority was speaking in condemnation of the church of Sardis for a portrayal of the outward appearance of being alive and yet totally spiritually dead. Though hard-hitting and blunt, Jesus' condemnation is only brief because out of His compassion, He seeks to restore and to revive. So He goes on to His correction in verses 2 and 3, reminding them about the awakening to wake up. And finally, it was His commendation in verses 4 and 5 for the victorious few that didn't soil their clothes. So, to start with, what is the basis of Jesus' condemnation of the Sardis church? When a church allows carnality or simply chasing after the things of the world just to keep up with the world, we become impotent. We become powerless. We lose our credibility. The Chinese, the Cantonese call it Ho Tai Mosek, literally translated to good to see but leaves a bad taste in the mouth. It's about having form, but no substance. Having the image, putting the image before content. Initially, there may be a lot of glamour, of glitz, of rah-rah. But when the music fades, when the clapping and the hallelujah stops, that's a sense of emptiness. And then you ask yourself, was God really in the picture? You know, this is almost like choosing durians. How many of you out there are durian lovers? Durian conosias? Wow, I could almost see all that hands being raised, hundreds of hands, thousands of hands being raised. You know? Yeah, if, if, if you're not a Malaysian, you probably won't know what I'm talking about. Or what I'm going to talk about in the next two minutes. But if you're Malaysian and you didn't put up your hand, you go and check your birth certificate. Make sure you're a Malaysian, yeah? All right? No, I'm just kidding. All right? There are a lot of good Malaysians out there who hate durians and they're God, God-fearing and loving Christians. But the fact is, it's not easy to choose a good durians. How many of you know how to choose durians? I don't see that many hands coming up. Not from even here, the congregation in the church. It's not that easy to choose durians because they all look alike. They smell alike even. And even if you shake it a bit, they sound alike. But when you're asked to choose a durian, ah, there are some macho men among them. They will put up a sandiwara. You know, they will take a durian and eyeball it closely to their face, even poking their own eyes. And then you shake it a bit, rattle it a bit, and then maybe smell it, almost poking their nose. And then maybe even wrap it and touch it, knock it. 
I don't know how they do it with all the thorns, but they do it. And ouch, ow. After a while, hmm, they will say, since the durian seller is an expert, you choose for me lah. And that's what they do. Alright, okay. So finally, a durian is chosen. And then, you open it. Well, mostly you get good and nice ones. But once in a while, you open a perfectly normal looking durian. And what do you get? You get the SFS durian. You know what's SFS? Sang Fan Xu. It appears heavenly on the outside, but dead to the taste inside. You can't do anything with it, but throw it away. All form and no substance. In a parallel context, Jesus has stronger words for someone in such a situation. In John chapter 15, verse 6, anyone who separates from me is dead wood, gathered up and thrown into the bonfire. Paul, however, being more gentle, says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 2 and 5. He says this, There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Have nothing to do with such people. Having a form of godliness and denying its power. What does that mean? Outward things like dressing, and mannerism can appear well and appeal to everyone. But that's only a form of godliness, religiosity. Not the power or outworking of the Holy Spirit. These ones, these people, will surreptitiously allow the worldly ways and the desires to creep in without you and I even knowing. And it will appear every bit as religious. No one is exempt from it. Not even church leaders, not even pastors let alone even some prominent Christian leaders who made the news recently, they are not spared from it either. Hypocrisy and religion decay are sins charged upon sadis. Christianity has become a name to live, not a principle of life. Let me repeat that. Christianity has become a name to live, but not a principle of life. In the words of a Bible commentator, your works are hollow and empty. Your prayers are not filled with holy desires. Your offerings and deeds are not filled up with true charity. And your Sundays are not filled with suitable devotion of soul to God. Your inward affections do not meet up with the outward acts and expressions. When the spirit is wanting, the form cannot long remain. When the spirit is wanting, the form cannot long remain. Dear friends, this is the living dead and the Lord condemns it strongly. Now if you are anywhere near this zone, come away. Don't linger there. Don't let it eat away at you and bring up dead flesh like gangrene. Come away from that. Speak to a church leader or come to the Lord yourself in prayer and maybe perhaps later, Come, come into the prayer altar, the online prayer altar, and someone will be there to pray with you. Amen? Amen? Then Jesus, out of His compassion and mercy, goes on to correct His church. He says in verse 2, Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. So there are three things that the Lord once corrected in His church. First, 
is to wake up and strengthen what remains. Then finish what you have started. And thirdly, remember, hold fast and repent. Now the Lord Jesus has certainly several issues with His church besides repressively reprimanding the church in Sardis. The issues are having a complacency in their relationship with Him, being slothful in even carrying out the works that He has called them to do, and thirdly, not holding fast to the apostolic teachings as they once did before. Now, some of us may not be in the same situation as the church of Sardis, but it was do us no harm to take heed of what the Lord Jesus has to say. Amen? Jesus says to wake up and strengthen what's remaining. Now, this is a command to us as His disciples to sit up, take notice and do a stock check and to see if there's anything stopping us from having a closer, a deeper relationship with the Lord Jesus. Sometimes with all our busy schedules and the cares of the world creeping in, especially in the difficult times like this where the COVID pandemic has made life difficult and finances seems to be difficult in coming. You know, we all taken up by so many things, but we may have missed out on the very important thing that the Lord wants to speak to us about. So if checking, there is a sin block that is the once that happens in the dark between you and God, unlike the sun block that you work in broad daylight. Now, the sin block is there and we ought to repent of that and start walking in the Spirit and in the light of God's Word. Ephesians 5, verse 14 and 15 says this, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Jesus also wants us to finish what was started. In terms of deeds or works, it is not the Lord's desire for us to keep on adding and initiating more good works, but to ensure whatever we have done is done excellently unto the Lord while completing what we have started. Take for example, from Monday to Friday, you are in the workplace and the work seems mundane, it seems routine, it seems sometimes to some people boring. But that is part of this work because work is worship. You are worshipping unto the Lord, even in your work, but you don't realise it. And when you, they go in day after day and you don't do it well, the Lord is saying here, what you have started when you first started working, finish it well. Give honour to Him. Give glory to Him. It's not about the number of good works you do as a side business. It's not about quantity. It's about quality in everything you do. It's about ensuring that these works are divinely inspired and are correctly motivated and measuring up to God's standards. If they were not spirit-produced, then they could not stand the test at the judgment seat of Christ and would fall under the category of wood, straw, or hay. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 and 13 has this to say, If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. Do the works you do in Jesus' name count for wood, hay, or straw, or gold and precious stones? Huh. The third issue that Jesus wants corrected is for us to remember, hold fast, 
and to repent. Colossians 2, verse 6 and 7 also says, So then, just as you receive Jesus Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness, the attitude of gratitude. We have to remember the early days in our life when we first received the Lord Jesus as a living word by faith. It is to be our lifelong source of comfort, of strength and of wisdom to be kept and held fast on continually. If you have deviated or have gone wrong somewhere, it is vital that we repent and correct our course before a true ch- because a true change of mind and heart is absolutely necessary for a Christian to have a consistent and, and a genuine walk with the Lord Jesus. All of these corrections to wake up, to finish, and to hold fast require us to realize that we live in a world governed by sin and the law of sin still works very powerfully around us, not in us, but around us. On the occasions when we fall prey to it, and let's be honest, we do fall into sin at times, and when these occasions when we fall into sin, we are in a head-on collision course with the justice and wrath of God's judgment. Not judgment for salvation, but judgment for the works that we do. We may be safe, even as though only one escaping through the flames, as in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 15, but not before enduring the ill effects of sin. The only solution is to turn away from it and repent. Repenting isn't just about saying sorry to God. It must mean an intentional change of direction, a course correction. Let me repeat that. Repenting isn't just about saying sorry to God. It must mean an intentional change of direction, a course correction from what we used to be doing wrong. If heading in this direction is leading to a collision course, you must change direction to swerve aside. Let me tell you about an incident that happened off the coast in Newfoundland, Canada, some years back. A battleship was on exercise at sea in bad weather. And the captain was on the bridge. It was foggy, it was just getting dark. And the lookout spotted a light off the starboard side, the right side of the ship. And the captain asked if that light was steady or was it moving? Because if it was steady, they were on a direct collision course. And the lookout replied, it was steady. So the captain hailed the light took this mic, please change your course 20 degrees to the north to avoid a collision course. Back came the reply, recommend you change your course 20 degrees to the south to avoid collision. The captain replied, this is the captain. I say again, change your course 20 degrees to the north. Again the reply, no, I say again, you change your course 20 degrees to the south. By this time, the captain was furious and he raised his voice. This is the battleship I'm commanding. I demand that you change course. Back came the reply. This is the lighthouse. Your call. Well, sometimes we are in situations like this, right? We know that at the end, who has to give way? It was a challenge between a battleship and a lighthouse. The impudent versus the immovable. Very often, we are like the captain of the battleship. 
overly confident, full of self even as a Christian, and not realizing the danger of collision ahead. Due to the same issues that Jesus raised with the Sardis church. On the other hand, the lighthouse represents Jesus. He's the light of the world after all, isn't he? And he warns us of the dangers ahead, not to become like the living dead. At the end of the day, it is your call. Will you make the right one? Despite the initial harsh words of condemnation, followed by the firm commands of correction, Jesus still loves his church, his people dearly. So he has great commendations for the victorious few. Do you remember me asking earlier if you are part of this minority group of the victorious few? This is when you will find out. In verse 4, it says, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. Now, you will see on your screen before you two charts, one depicting a minority and the other a majority group. Now, which one would you prefer to be in? Now, before you answer, you should find out the characteristics of each group. In the church of Sardis, the majority happens to be the incorrigible ones that were severely reprimanded, condemned, and even cast out from Jesus' presence. It's as if Jesus is declaring to them in Matthew 7, verse 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. But in the minority are the victorious few, like yourself, perhaps, who have not soiled your clothes. And I hope it's not the religious diapers they're wearing. You may be among the ones that produced deeds or acts of righteousness empowered by the Holy Spirit. These deeds are the only ones that will stand the test before the judgment seat of Christ, the mercy seat of Christ, as described in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 13. Their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. Will you be the one to stand up to uphold the righteousness of God, even if you are standing alone? Will you also be there to pour out the mercies and the love and compassion of God, even if you have to do it by yourself? If so, you'll be among those that will walk with me, dressed in white, for you are worthy, says Jesus. Walking in white with Jesus it's a sign of faithfulness. Undoubtedly, special accolades like well done, good and faithful servant comes to mind. Along with this, also is a commendation, a more brilliant commendation of being publicly acknowledged before Father God and His angels. It's written in verse 5 here. Todd Stiles of the First Family Church in US calls it this, a Trinitarian acclamation upon regeneration. Wow! a Trinitarian acclamation before Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, you are acknowledged publicly upon regeneration of your spiritual self. The power and the outworking of the Holy Spirit is within you. Wow! What a privilege and an honour. Wouldn't you long to be in this group of the privileged few, the few that Jesus was talking about? These are the overcomers 
that may experience blame and ridicule, even loss of citizenship before the world because he or she refuses to follow after the world or bow down to its threats. They are the ones that have not only endured extenuating circumstances, but have emerged victorious. These overcomers will experience special reward in the form of public recognition before Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let me relate another story before I close. It's about two individuals from two nations that were at war with each other. They've never met, but unknown to each other, they were fighting for the same cause in different ways, but united in their love for the same God. One grew up in Germany, while the other lived in the Netherlands. Both lives came to prominence during the Second World War, between 1939 to 1945, when Germany became the invader and the persecutor, while Netherlands suffered under occupation and persecution. The German was Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the Dutch Corrie ten Boom. Although the nations were enemies at war, each in his or her own way served their Lord and God Jesus Christ, shunning ridicule, being ostracized by their fellow countrymen, facing daily threats of danger to life and limb, and sacrificing personal comfort and conveniences. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor, theologian, writer, activist who went against Nazi Germany regime because of the ideology was totally different, diametrically opposite to the biblical principles. But bear in mind, during Hitler's time, the German evangelical and even the Catholic churches, including Bonhoeffer's own denomination, the Lutherans, still towed the line drawn by the Nazi. They were actually on Hitler's side. He refused to toe the line. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer pastored independent small churches, which he called the Confessing Church, where amongst them he taught and he wrote many inspiring articles and helped hundreds of German Jews escape certain death. He believed that everyone is equal before God's eyes and God is fair to everyone, loving everyone equally. So for this and the upholding of many other righteous principles of the Lord, he stood alone, ostracized by his own countrymen and he suffered tremendously for it, including being interred in the prison camps and eventual execution, together with many members of his extended family. Then Corrie ten Boom grew up in a Christian family and a community that taught her much about God's love and mercy in Netherlands. She translated this into living out her faith by devoting herself to helping children, the mentally handicapped, the poor, and even many Jews in her country. And she was praying for them all the way. Many small groups of Jews were hidden and sheltered in a house and fed in a family home too until they could escape to other lands. Hundreds were safe until Corrie's family herself was arrested by the Gestapo and they were all sent to prison camps where both her father and her sister Betsy died. She was miraculously released subsequently and continued doing what she felt was right before God and until the war was over and even until she ended her own fight on earth. Now, these were two individuals living in the same era on opposite sides of the fence, but remained in the same outstanding minority like the few people in Sardis. They knew Jesus deeply and not only held fast to the Christian beliefs, but lived it out amidst tremendous suffering. 
They never gave up, but they finished what they started and emerged victorious as overcomers. Today, they remain as a great inspiration to many. We may not fit into their shoes, but certainly their footprints can be a guide to our feet. Amen? So, we have heard in Jesus' letter to the church of Sardis, how he exerted his spiritual authority, first in condemnation of the spiritually dead, and then in his compassion to revive her by guiding her into correction of sinful actions, and finally, to end positively with commendation towards those that persevere. The letter to Sardis closes with Revelation 3 verse 6 that says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word hear in the Jewish mind of the author would carry the same connotation as the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 and 5. Hear Shema, all Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The hear or Shema mentioned here goes beyond understanding sounds and concepts. Unlike the language in which the New Testament was written in Greek, where it was ekuo, just to listen and to reflect and to think about it. It goes beyond thinking. It must go down to our hearts and be translated into action. It involves the element of putting what is heard into action, as in taking heed and obeying simultaneously. That's what Shema means to hear and to obey, to take heed simultaneously. May I encourage everyone who's watching and logging in now to do likewise. Please don't take the words of Jesus lightly. You may not see the elements of the church of Sardis in your own church, not in SIBKL perhaps, and not in your own life. But then, neither did the captain of the battleship realise they was heading towards a collision course. Nor would anyone expect the deceptive outcome of the unripe or the Sangfan Shi Durian until it was open. Eyes or hearts unopened by the Holy Spirit will not yield the revival of the living dead. So let us seek the counsel of the Holy Spirit in both song and prayer as we close the service.